Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey. I'm your host, Jamie. We have a great show for you. In fact, this is our very first show of 2024, and I wanted Sky Jatani to join me for a reason. Here's the reason. I had to read his book with for seminary this last year, and I asked him, how does it feel to ha- to know that like people in school have to read your books? Like We get a grade over it. I read his book this last fall in seminary. I actually listened to it on my walks, but then I went and bought the book because I wanted to have it forever. And it really is one of my favorite books that I read in 2023. And I'm just, I'm always suggesting books for you to buy. In fact, if you want to buy my new book, Why Can't I Get It Together? It comes out in February. But I will say Sky Jutani's book is a really, really, really great book. It's one that I told all my friends they should read. And I stick by that. And so we talk about it today. And what does it actually mean to live life with God? Not just for Him, not under Him. He, He has four different ways he talks about. And I just was convicted by the book. I was challenged. I was encouraged. All the things that I love about a book, I want them to do those things for me. And so Sky's on the show today. Super excited about this month. We have great shows in store, but I think you're going to like this conversation. And so I would love it. Like, tell us what you think about it. Send me a comment on Instagram. Leave a comment here on YouTube. Or the best thing you could do is leave a rating or review over on iTunes for the podcast. That's always helpful for us. But no matter what, I just want you to know I'm grateful that you're here. There are a thousand podcasts that you could listen to every week. I know that because I have a thousand shows I want to listen to that I don't get to. And I'm really grateful that you chose to be here with us. And I think we have content that is encouraging and challenging and uplifting and points you to Jesus, which is my goal in all of these shows. And so I'm glad you're here today is all I want to say. And here's my conversation with Sky Jatani. Guy Jatani, welcome back to the happy hour. Thanks, Jamie. I'm happy to be here. Well, I should have done my due diligence. Look at me. I'm not even prepared. I can't remember when you were on. Was it last year, 2022? I, you know, I'm surprised. I mark it every year as an anniversary of significance for me. So, well, I usually no, send I you the balloons at the door and thank you for coming on. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't remember either, but I'm happy to talk to you anytime. So I'm grateful to be back. Well, I'm happy to have you back on the happy hour. And um, how presumptuous of me to remember that to think that you'd be like, oh, I remember when I was on the happy hour. That was a day. Um, <laughs> I'm grateful to have you back. And I've said this the last time you were on. I told you before we started recording. And I'll just say um, you co-host the Holy Post um, with Phil Vischer. And you always say you guys co-host, but you also have some rotating females that I love and adore as well. And I'm just grateful for the work you guys put out. So thank you for such great content. Oh, we appreciate that. And, you know, likewise, we need more, you know, Christians in the, in the podcast world that are doing thoughtful, fun, engaging stuff. So, you know, let's strap our rafts together and keep going. I love that idea of strapping our rafts together and keep going. That's the best way. Have you ever been to um, like the New Braunfels, Texas area? This is I'm going to go on a rabbit trail real quick. I don't think so. Okay, so we have what we do here down the Guadalupe River is we'll float down the river. I'm sure people do this all over the world. Like I'm thinking only oh, do this in Texas. But the most fun way to do it, Sky, is to get in your little tube and bring some 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 um 
rope and tie all your tubes together. And so you always stay together when you go down the river. And that's what we need to do in Christian podcasting. I love it. There you go. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Um, Happy first of the year. This is 2024. And I had to read a book last semester in my first semester of seminary. And so I've got one semester under my belt and I got the syllabus for the class. And I thought, well, isn't this exciting that I have to read a book by one of my favorite Christian podcasters. And so we were required to read a book of yours called With, uh, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. First of all, what's it like to know that professors all around the world are making students read your words? Uh, It seems that my bribery has worked. So (laughs) that's one way to get your book sold is to convince professors to require it on the syllabus. No, in all seriousness, like I'm in seminary Uh, and like higher education, which is kicking my tail, but they told us that it was important enough to read a book that you wrote. What does that feel it, like? It is very, fl- it is very, very flattering. You know, when I, for many years I worked at Christianity Today, and one of my responsibilities is I would get dozens of books every week across my desk from Christian publishers who are looking to get reviews or publicity in the magazine or whatever. And so I saw pretty much everything that was getting published by Christian people. And and in those years, what kind of turned my stomach a little bit was the realization that most of these books wouldn't last 30 days in their mm. relevance. Like they're, they're just flash in the pan stuff. So when I started writing books, part of my um, motivation is I, I didn't, like there are great ideas out there that should just be a tweet and maybe a blog post or an article, but to actually put pen to paper and say, I'm going to write a 150 or 200 page book that's going to kill trees and be printed on paper and sold on shelves and take up space in this planet. Like you need to write something, in my opinion, that has some enduring message. And mm. so the fact that I wrote this book came out in 2011, that was my hope that it would be an enduring message, knowing that there are still classes that are requiring this because they think it's a valuable message you know, more than a decade later is really gratifying. And I, I hope I hope more of what I produce has that kind of longevity. I think it will. Well, I actually listened to the book and the only bad side about that is you didn't read it. And I was like, I know what Sky sounds like and this is not him. I, you know, what's been an annoyance is I keep forgetting to put that in like my book contracts that I want to read my own work, yeah, but the, uh-huh. the, my next book that's in the contract. So Good. hopefully going we'll forward, people can hear my voice. Yeah. Well, this book that you said came out in 2011, uh, it's called with, like I said, reimagining the way you relate to God. And I, I wanted to start out 2024 with this book sky, because for me, it was really, really a beautiful time of walking in my neighborhood and listening to this book. And it, and it wasn't, like I had to get through this because it was a class. Like I enjoyed it so much and it moved me so much. And um, in my seminary, I'm very lucky to be going through with a cohort of a bunch of women that we will go through this for three years together. And so we have this massive group text, which is a thing in and of itself. Everyone loves this book. And so as I was thinking about how do I want to start 2024, I thought I want to start it with how I want to start my life. Like I want to center myself on how do I relate to God. And your book is all about that. So let's start at the beginning of this book. And I know that this is going to be encouragement to people. You start this book and the first chapter is called Life After Eden. And basically there's a reason that it's that we struggle t- with relating with God. Can you can you talk us through what is it that we just really as Christians have a struggle with relating um, with God correctly? Yeah, this really dates back when I was an undergraduate in college, I studied comparative religion. That means I spent a lot of time studying Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and early Christianity and Hinduism and all these. And one of the things that I came away from that education with is a sense, this universal understanding that all these different religious traditions are grappling with the same problem. And that is that we're afraid. People Mm -hmm. are fearful of all kinds of things in this world. And in our fear, we are grasping for control. We want to somehow make the world go the way we want it to go. Mm-hmm. And that cycle of fear and control, I argue in this book, it, it's the, the story of, of Eden and the fall of humanity is all about that. And it, it prevents us from truly trusting God and relating to him as he's calling us to. So mm-hmm. most religious postures, including those that are practiced by evangelical Christians in America is an attempt at controlling God because we're afraid rather than truly trusting God because he's proven his goodness. And in our pursuit of control, we just screw up everything. And yeah, so that's kind of the 
basic posture, not just of Christians in America, but of all people in all religious traditions. I feel like you're describing my everyday life, Sky, over here, like yearning for control, <laughs> it, afraid of, afraid of what's going to happen. Too. Yeah. It's like, it's like, the, I feel like a little, us. I feel it in my chest really deeply when you say that, because it is, it is all of us. Uh, you write in here, you say, our hearts seek God in the goodness, beauty, justice, and peace that we've been told he provides, but often he remains hidden behind the shadow cast of an evil world. We also live in this evil, evil world where you have, I have every listener, we've been hurt. We've been let down. We've had sickness right. enter. How does that come into, I know it comes from the fall, but how does that come into us being able to trust God or our lack of? Well, I mean, going back to the story in Genesis three, when, when the man and woman are in the garden, the serpent says to them, did God really say mm-hmm. that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die? And in that moment, the serpent is causing the man and woman to doubt God's goodness, to no longer see him as he truly is. And whether you take that literally or figuratively, the truth in it is that this world is conspiring to prevent us from seeing God as he truly is. And sometimes that comes through lies, like the serpent told, but sometimes it comes through circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, We see a world of disorder and chaos and injustice and pain and suffering and death and all these horrible things, and all of that clouds our vision of a good, loving God. Mm-hmm. And we naturally, automatically will doubt his goodness and can he be trusted, which then sends us down the road of seeking control for ourselves. I'm going to grab that fruit and try to take control of life for myself, or I'm going to make enough money or have enough power or say enough prayers or give enough to the church or be on mission enough for Jesus in order to make myself feel sufficiently righteous or secure for eternity or whatever in order to feel safe. And Mm. that's where we all go astray. You know, as you were talking just now, and even as you were reading the book, I thought this is this is this is going to be great. This is for it's going to help a lot of people. But I feel like I'm pretty good with myself. And like when I started this book, like I, I trust God, all the things, and yet every <laughs> single scenario in this book and everything you've just said, I see myself. It's written all over me all the time. And so I want to encourage the listener or reader who picks up this book is that like you're not alone if you're thinking, "Wow, I totally. do this." Like this is, I think, what we're all doing, and I mean, we'll be doing this until we meet Jesus. Am I? I mean, how do how do we not? Right, we will be struggling with it until we meet Jesus, and that's kind of the point of the book. Is the first half of it is articulating all these different ways that we pursue control because we're rooted in fear, and it's very easy to point that out in an atheist or a secularist or somebody who doesn't share our religious tradition. What I try to do in this book is argue. Actually, it's just as prevalent among evangelical Christians in America as it is with any of those other religious traditions. And But the second half of the book then turns a corner and says, okay, if none of those postures work, then how do we relate to God? And mm-hmm. I think we can, by his grace, come to a healthier way of relating to him that is not rooted in fear and control. But we can talk about that as we continue, but it is possible. It's not going to be perfect. We're going to stumble along the way, but it is certainly possible. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike, and it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. 
You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Okay, let's talk about these four things because as I was working my way through this book and I got through the four things, I tried to like take a moment and think, okay, Jamie, where do you find yourself like leaning the most? And and I just thought like I see myself in all of these at different times in my lives at diff- different struggles. Sure. So let's go through all of them real quick. Um, I will say them all and then I want to I want you to explain them each to us. Life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. And I, I found it interesting. I don't find any kind of mistake with this that it starts with us with our life and. And it ends with God. And this is all the different ways that we relate to him, either under, for, over, from, or for. So let's start with under. Explain what you mean by yeah. that. Yeah, this is the most, um, for people who've studied sort of an anthropology of religion, this is the most common form of religion. It's basically superstition. So um, think about your knowledge of pagan, early pagan religious traditions, like the people want to make sure there's a harvest. They don't know how to control the sun or the rain. So they make sacrifices. They drop a virgin down a volcano, whatever the, the superstition is in order to get the gods to do what you want them to do. That's life under God. This idea that if we just obey all the rules perfectly, we can control God to make sure he or the gods do what we want them to do. As religion developed over time, it, it, it transitioned from like human sacrifice and incantations and magic spells, and it became more morality based, which mm-hmm. is what you see quite often in, in the book of Job and other parts of the Old Testament, which is, well, Job, things aren't going well for you because you must not have followed God's rules exactly right. And if you did follow his rules exactly right, then you wouldn't be suffering. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have any pain or discomfort. And that comes into our Christian lives, many forms, but it's essentially... Um, you know, on a macro level, this is Christian nationalism. It's the idea that, well, if America would just put godly people in place and make sure the right laws are on the books, then God will bless America. On a personal level, I remember being in high school at a youth rally being told, you know, if you just abstain from sex outside of marriage, then God will bless you and you'll have a perfect marriage and wonderful sex life in the future. And that's, it's all the same idea as I'm trying to control God by perfect obedience and put him in my debt so that he has to then do and give me what I want. And that's life under God. But again, it's predicated on fear and control. And I'd argue if if scripture and history have taught us anything, it's that God is notoriously uncooperative at our attempts at controlling him. There are whole books of the Bible written debunking this view. Mm -hmm. Job is one of them. Jesus Mm -hmm. debunks this view multiple times in the gospels. It's very, very, very popular, but it's very, very, very broken. It reminds me of, you know, the whole um, raise up a child in the ways of the Lord and he will never depart. And here I am parenting, you know, teenagers and young adults. And I'm like, 
the little old women who, when I first pregnant and, and prayed this verse over me, like they had great intentions and the verse is great. It's like, this yeah. is what you should do. Yes. But the promise is not there. And so that's kind of what you're talking about. Like if I just do all the right things, my kids will follow you. And that's not necessarily right. the promise that is given to us. Yeah. Like I said, the entire book of Job is an argument to debunk this. And then you get to the gospels and I mean, John nine, there was this man born blind and Jesus' mm-hmm. disciples ask him who sinned that caused this man to be born blind. Jesus said nobody. And the perfect example of this is Jesus himself who was without sin. Mm-hmm. And yet look how his life ended. He was rejected and crucified. Now, ultimately, he was you know, justified by God and raised from the dead, just as Job at the end of his story is blessed by God and, and raised up again. So there is, in a sense, a cosmic justice. But if we believe that um, obedience always leads to good things in this life and disobedience automatically leads to bad things. The entire biblical narrative debunks that view. Right. Yeah. So we can't fall into that trap of thinking we can control God and the outcome of our lives simply through our moral obedience. Mm, don't we wish we could? Wow. I, I, huh. Okay. So let's move into this life over God. If that was life under God, what is right. the opposite of that life over God? Yeah. So in response to sort of the superstitious religious uh, instinct of civilization, along came the opposite. It said, oh, you stupid people, you can't control God by you know, superstition or incantations or magic spells or whatever. The way to gain control over the world is through principles and, and natural laws. This is what the Enlightenment taught us. It says, if you really want control, then figure out how the world works and take control yourself. The illustration I give in the book is, you know, a couple hundred years ago, if you got fever, you would probably go to church, light a candle, confess your sins, and pray that God would restore mm-hmm. your health because mm-hmm. it's it's about that life under God. I got to do all these things to get God to take away my fever. Today, in the modern world, if you get a fever, most of us don't even think about prayer. We don't think about going to church. What we think about is get to a pharmacy and, and get some ibuprofen or Tylenol mm-hmm. because we now have the direct means of trying to control the world. So life over God is basically saying, I don't need to submit to God's... Um, divine instructions, I need to figure out how the world works and take control for myself. Mm. The obvious extreme form of that is atheism or secularism. But I would argue this is a very, very prevalent attitude in a lot of the American evangelical church. But the way it expresses itself is, (laughs) this is going to sound weird, but it's through strict obedience to the principles revealed in scripture, even though God doesn't have to be involved. So whether it's raising your kids God's way or building your business on biblical principles or running your government based on you know, the laws of the Old Testament. We can have Christian families and Christian businesses and Christian vacations and Christian colleges mm-hmm. and all these Christian things because it's all based on what we interpret to be biblical instruction. But Jesus Christ himself doesn't actually have to be involved as long as you're running your life based on as one teenager in my church said years ago, the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That idea that he's given us this manual of how to run our lives. Mm. But that attitude means I don't actually need God because Mm. I've been given his instructions. I know how to manage everything. Just give me the right rules to go by. That's life over God. It makes him unessential. Uh, Off to the side. We might thank him for the Bible, Mm -hmm. thank him for the instructions and the wisdom, but we don't actually need him. We Mm. just need the right instructions, principles to guide our lives. Would this be like people, and this is like an, like an assumption or whatever, but it, would this be like people who are like demanding the Ten Commandments in every room in the school, in every yeah. school room, because we just need to make sure people know the rules, but we don't actually need God in our lives? Yeah, it is. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of this, but it's uh, one that comes to mind is from John chapter 5. Jesus, this is how the Pharisees live. The Pharisees mm-hmm. memorized the Old Testament scriptures and they made it their mission to obey all 613 commands in the, in the Torah. But Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me mm. and you refuse to come to me. I think that same rebuke could apply to a lot of us who, who take the Bible seriously and believe it is God's ordained, inspired mm-hmm. word. It is entirely possible to have a relationship with the Bible, but not have a relationship with the God of the Bible. That was exactly what the Pharisees did. In fact, when the God of the Bible was standing right in front of them, they didn't recognize him. 
So I'm all for the Bible. And there is tons of wisdom there that we ought to be grateful for. And in fact, follow, obey, and employ in our lives. But it's a subtle shift. And it's a dangerous one to, in a weird way, make an idol out of the Bible and think that, well, because I'm following the instructions of the Bible, I must have a relationship with the God of the Bible. And that is not necessarily true. I th- that I so far, and I want well, I'll tell you which one scares me the most, but so far out of these two, this one scares me the most because to me, this one feels the easiest to look the right part, if that makes sense. Like, totally to maybe disguise the lack of needing God because you look like you have that you're needing him, but you're just mm-hmm. have a relationship with the Bible and not God. That's going to kind of keep me up at night, Sky. <laughs> well, it should keep us all up at night. Really, the, the issue behind this, and hopefully I can speak to more people who might be listening who are coming from different Christian traditions. Every tradition of Christianity has some great strength, some value that they hold very highly, some means by which they believe they encounter God. So, you know, in sacramental traditions, very often it's the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. right? It's communion that I encounter the presence of God through the the cup and the bread. Um, For Pentecostal traditions, it's often the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether it's speaking in tongues or some other gift. For the evangelical tradition, one of its great strengths is the high view of the authority of the Bible. Really good thing. And we encounter God through the Bible. But the great danger in any one of these traditions is that you end up making an idol out of that thing that you believe you encounter God through. So you begin to worship the Eucharist rather than Jesus, mm-hmm. or you begin to exalt or make normative a certain gift of the Spirit rather than actual communion with the Spirit, or you exalt the Bible in the place of God himself. And so it becomes our Achilles heel, and we make these good gifts, as Tim Keller would say, into ultimate things. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get off track. I am in no way saying the Bible is not true or good or valuable or important. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us because through it, we see who he is. But there's a difference between viewing the Bible as a window through which we see God and viewing it as a manual that, Mm -hmm. oh, I got the instruction book. Now this is all I need. God, thank you very much. Now Mm -hmm. you go away. I've got -hmm. got what I need. Mm. You know, in the past couple of years, probably the past 10 years, I always say, I've had a lot of things that I'm like, man, God, I'm so grateful that you that you put me in this path. But one of them has been is that I've become not just friends, but co-laborers with people who come from different parts of the church. And it's been a beautiful gift for me to see people who like I grew up Southern Baptist. Like we just didn't talk about the spirit or gifts that much, right. you know? And so it's been such a joy to me. And so I can see how that would help. Okay. I want to move on. The next one, life from God. Explain this one to us. Yeah. This is the idea that um, the way I will mitigate my fears and, and feel like I have control of the world is by getting all the things from God that I possibly can. Um, in, in its extreme form, this is the prosperity gospel. It mm-hmm. basically says, God exists in order for me to achieve my dreams and desires. Therefore, I'm going to pray or I'm going to give or I'm going to serve. I'm going to do all these things in order to get what I really want. Mm -hmm. Um, The story that I think illustrates this most potently is from Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. And most people are familiar with that. But Jesus tells this story of a father with two sons and the younger son is a chotchball. He's an idiot. And he says to his dad, essentially drop dead. I don't care about you. I don't care about this family. I don't care about this home. I just want my half of the inheritance so that I can go do what I want. And then for whatever reason, the father liquidates his assets, gives the money to the younger son, and he goes off to a distant country where he spends the money self-indulgently. And a lot of us have that same posture toward God, which is I don't really care about God. What I really care about is what I can get from him. Mm. So I will be happy to use Jesus in order to get a good marriage or to have great kids or to make more money or to be healthy or to feel like I have eternal security and I'm not going to go to hell, but I'm going to go to heaven. Like all that's just a way of using Jesus to make me feel safe and secure. Mm. Or I want to use Jesus to make my country better or to whatever my Mm -hmm. dreams and desires may be. Mm. But at the end, all of those attitudes reduce Jesus into a means to an end. Mm -hmm. It's essentially a way of asking Jesus to bow his knee to your idol, what you really worship and want most. And um, this is outrageously prevalent throughout the world, throughout different religions, and in the American church as well. Um, 
yeah, I and mean, we go into this in more depth, but it's it's one of those more self-evident ones, I think. How do you see this play out in the American church the most? I mean, you said prosperity oh, gospel, but I mean... It, oh, it's subtle, but it comes out in a bunch of different ways. Um, it's... <laughs> I mean, a lot of the church growth movement, frankly, is predicated on this idea. It, it's the notion that people, especially as our culture increasingly secularizes... Mm -hmm a lot of people don't really have a felt need for God. So a lot of the marketing that's come into the church growth movement has said, hey, survey your community and figure out what it is they do want. And then well, offer I, them you know, that. I need help with my marriage. I need help with my parenting. I need help with this, that, and the other. And then as the church, you go, oh, we can help you with that. Mm -hmm. And Jesus can help you get that. Or you know, you, you've been trying to achieve the success in your life following Oprah or Dr. Mm -hmm. Phil or whoever, you know, your guru is, what you really need to do is try it Jesus way. And in that, in that formulation, you're not actually asking people to change what they want. You're simply asking them to change the means by which they're going about getting it. So instead of trying it the world's way, why don't you try it Jesus way? Mm -hmm. But you're keeping their idol, their false God firmly in place. You're just making Wow. Your view of God, Jesus, subservient to their view of God. And yeah, and here's the crazy part. When you read the Gospels, most of the people who come to Jesus are not coming because they want Jesus. They're coming they because something? they have some other, th they want something else. They want, you know, my daughter is dying, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Can you please come and heal her? Um, I'm demon possessed. I'm blind. I'm sick. I'm whatever my issue is. Can you help me? We're hungry. We don't have any food, Jesus. Like, yeah. And there's not a single story of Jesus turning away anyone in need. And it's not because they all deserved it. It's because he gave to them because of who he was, not because of who they were, not mm -hmm. because they earned it or deserved it. But at the same time, there are these critical moments in the Gospels. John 6 is probably the most vivid example where Jesus stops doing miracles and he turns to the crowd and he basically says, do you really want me mm -hmm. enough to drink my blood and eat my flesh? And, and he starts talking about this really kind of crazy idea that I'm done with the miracles and I'm here to challenge you. Do you really want me? And it says that everyone walked away except for the 12. Mm -hmm. And I think that was Jesus very intentionally thinning the herd. They had been following him for months, maybe years, and they were all impressed with the show and the spectacle and the miracles and the and what they could get from him. But when he turned it and said, but do you actually want mm. me? They all walked away. Mm. And at some point in our ministries, it's not wrong to care for people in their felt needs and to mm -hmm. serve them and bless them and heal them and feed them and all the things that we're called to do as followers of Christ. But we also need to be aware that at some point we need to challenge people with what it is they actually desire. Mm. And have they come to a place of seeing Jesus clearly enough that they actually desire him not just what they can get from him. Mm. That one was really convicting for me too, of just like what, as a leader too, of like, what am I leading people towards? Am I leading them towards, let's solve your problem or let me show you the three ways to have more mm -hmm. joy. And the thing too, Sky, about a lot of these things is there's so much good embedded in them. Like there are good, Absolutely. Like, there's good things, all the things. But then when you get all the way to the bottom, it really made me pause and reflect. Okay. The last one is life for God. Um, tell me about huh. this one. Yeah. So this is the, um, this is the way we, especially those of us in ministry vocations, tend to view everything else. Life for God says, instead of using God to achieve your dreams and desires, you need to be used by God mm -hmm. to achieve his dreams and desires. And you need to stop being a Christian consumer and you need to become a Christian activist. You need to change the world for Jesus. You need to get on mission for Jesus. Um, I illustrate this with the other part of the prodigal son story. You know, after the son comes home and his father welcomes him back, the older son is out in the field having a pity party for himself and right. he won't come in and celebrate. The father goes out to him and the older son says, hey, I've always served you. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. Where's my party? And his attitude was, was that of a life for God. I have mm -hmm. done everything you've asked me to do, God. And, and a lot of us use ministry and our sacrifices for the, the gospel, whatever we, we define ministry as, uh, we use that as a way of making ourselves feel secure and important 
and as if we matter. And that's mitigating our deepest fear of being insignificant. Mm. And so we use God and his mission as a way of propping up our own insecurity and giving us a sense of control. Mm. And this, for me, I feel is the most insidious one, the most dangerous, because it's the people who look like they are doing the most for God, who are the most committed, who are the most sacrificial, who are the most uh, you know, committed to the work of Christ in the world, who can be the most self-deluded in believing that they actually belong to him. And, and mm. for me, the scariest text in the entire Bible is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is in Matthew 7, he's talking about the day of judgment. And he says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works. We can parse that and get into what that's, mm-hmm. what's actually going on here. It's really interesting. But Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. And the scariest word in that scariest passage is many. Mm-hmm. That many people will be so convinced they belong to Jesus because they've spent their life serving him. That they will go into eternity convinced they belong to him and they don't. And in, in a lot, again, the other great strength of the evangelical tradition, apart from our you know, commitment to the authority of scripture, is our commitment to the mission of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we make either one of those things more foundational than communion with Christ himself, mm. we're in real danger. So that's where the life for God thing sounds so good, mm-hmm. but it's really sinister if it's foundational. You said making God's mission into an idol is a common and serious fault of the life for God posture because it perpetuates the rebellion of Eden. It is a more subtle way of dethroning God and replacing him with something that we can control. There comes that control, the fear and the control. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay, so these are the these are the four things that should shake us in our bones and maybe keep you up at night, friends. But that there is hope on the other side of this. Okay, so Scott, you turn the, <laughs> you turn the table here towards the end of the book, uh, the last half of the book, and you talk about life with God and you talk about what it looks like to have life with God, with faith, with hope, and with love. And I know we spent a lot of our time talking about those four. And we said earlier, like you, you, you may struggle with these and you may find yourself in these, but that doesn't have to be the whole story. Like this is possible. And so what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to really reimagine the way that we relate to God? How do we do that? What does that look like? Yeah. The beginning of it, and this is not something that just suddenly appears on the scene in Matthew chapter one, as if it's a new Testament innovation. It's, it's throughout the old Testament as well. Where God in his graciousness, even after the man and woman sin, what does he do? He, he himself sews together garments for them mm-hmm. and covers them. And his people are enslaved in Egypt and he rescues them before they've committed to his covenant, before mm-hmm. he's given them the law, before they've obeyed his commands. He rescues them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, All you see over and over and over again is what God is saying is, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm for you. I am going to do good to you even when you don't deserve it. Mm. And in all of this, what God is revealing is that this is a God with us world in which our fear is unnecessary. And that's proven most vividly through the cross and resurrection where Jesus takes upon our sin. He faces the very worst this world can do, suffers more than we can imagine, is dead and buried, and God raises him from the dead. 
And that victory over the worst evil in the world is that the assurance we have, as Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. So the vision we have throughout the Bible and most vividly in the New Testament with the resurrection is that we're perfectly safe in God's hands, that this world and all the evil and darkness and shadows that block our vision of him, including death, has no power over us because we are in his hands. And if we are perfectly safe, then we don't have to seek control. And if we don't have to seek control, then all these other postures we've spent the last half an hour talking about don't make sense. Mm. It doesn't make sense to try to control God with our morality. It doesn't try to make sense to control the world through biblical principles. It doesn't make sense to try to protect ourselves by getting every possible gift we can from God. And it doesn't make sense to prop up our significance by trying to do more for God. Mm. So if none of that makes sense, then how are we supposed to relate to him? The message of Jesus is that control is an illusion. You never had control and you never can. And the most common command in scripture is do not be afraid because I have proven my love for you. So when all of that is washed away, what opens up is a different way of relating to God, which is one of love, that we are called to live in communion with him. And this is what Jesus says. The whole reason he has sent the son is so that he would die for our sins, not so that we would be on mission for God, not so that God could accomplish things through us, not because he needs us to do anything, but he did that so that he might once again reconcile us to himself, that we might become the children of God. In that prodigal son story, when the father sees the younger son coming home, he runs and embraces him. And rather than saying, you moron for stealing all my money and spending it on wild living, or rather than making him apologize and grovel, he just puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and kills the family and celebrates. He's overjoyed to have his son back home. And at the end of the story, that really bizarre behavior is explained to the older son. When the father says, all these years you've been with me, but this brother of yours was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive again. And there it is the heart of God. Mm. What he cares most about is having his children with him. It matters more than their sinfulness. It matters more than their service, more than their obedience. He cares about our presence. And that's what Jesus is showing in the compassion he shows to sinful people, in his patience with his idiotic disciples, in his willingness to go to the cross, despite the fact that we were his enemies. It's because he wants us with him. And once we see that, it transforms everything about the Christian life. Mm. You know, I um, love everything you just said. And at the end, how you talk about all these ways to be with God. And it, as I was listening to the book, as I was walking, there was a part, there were parts of me, Sky, that were like, this feels very um, radical, even in like growing up in a Christian church and Christian environment my entire life. And it feels very radical in a sense. And it, is it, would you call it this radical way of living or would you call this just like, and what I mean by that is it doesn't feel even normal sometimes in like that you're hearing from like churches and what does it look right. like to be a follower of Jesus in America? These things don't often come up. That's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it breaks my heart. I'll tell you a little backstory on this book. I was, I have two friends of mine, at least we used to all get together regularly and they were also writers, although they didn't write the same kind of stuff I did. And we would share our writing with each other and give each other feedback and help each other hone our ideas. And I was working on a completely different book idea and I was struggling with it. And I was invited to preach at a, a fairly large church and I, and I preached a message that was kind of this message. It was this with God idea. And I got this enormous response from this church to this message, like just unlike other stuff I had preached. And I came back to my two writing partner friends and I explained to them what had happened. And they said, Sky, you got to kill that other book idea that you were working on and write that book, write this with idea. And, I'm, and I said to them, you're joking, right? And they're like, no, 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 this is the message that the church really needs to hear. I'm like, this is not. This is Christianity. What this isn't even Christianity 101. This is like more basic than 101. And they're like, yeah, but people don't understand this. And having had, I was raised sort of the one foot in the church and maybe more than one foot out of it. And 
I don't think I, I appreciated, even as a pastor, I didn't appreciate that most people in our churches don't actually know the message of Jesus. And so as I wrote this book and, and, you know, it's been out for more than a decade now. And as I taken this message different places, I am grateful that it resonates so strongly with people. I'm grateful that people like you, you know, find this message to be radical and compelling, but it also breaks my heart because the fact that this message is radical and compelling shows how lost the church in America mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. And not just America, but many places. Mm-hmm. And that breaks my heart. It really, really, I wish this book wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. I th- was thinking about when I was listening to, I can't remember which part of it, about how in our particular country here in the United States, I think that um, God's name has just been, I, I was going to use a very crazy word. I'll say it. I don't know if it'll stay in. It's been almost prostituted a little bit for politics and for mm-hmm. people to be able to kind of do whatever they want in the name of quote in the name of God, in the name of truth, in the name of the Bible. And we've seen that so often. I think that's been what has caused so many people to have so much tension over the last eight years, even if we talk about in our political system, in our political world. And that kept rising up to the to the top of my head as I was listening to your book is this is the reason I wanted to start this year with this is because I I, you know, we have an election this year in 2024 and I feel like there is a tension that people feel who kind of get confused by the way that people will use God's name and even mm-hmm. his 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 word and his characters and his ideas of how best living is and but then they just kind of it's not really true to them it's not really who they are and that's why I thought this is a book that I want all my listeners to read in 2024, because this is a message that we need as we look around and go like, this is confusing because that doesn't make sense that what you're saying about God and then what you're doing and how you're living. And so, yeah, I just appreciate, I just appreciate it so much. Well, I I thank you for saying that and for giving me the opportunity to share some of this with, with your audience. One of the things that my father is an immigrant from India, comes from a Hindu family background. He's not a Christian. And I remember when he read this book, he said to me, it surprised him because so much of what I say in this book, he realizes came from the fact that he's my dad. And that you know, before I graduated high school, he had taken me to 30 foreign countries and I had seen the world and I had I have relatives who are Hindus and atheists and, and Jews and Sikhs and Catholics and Protestants. I mean, I have just this incredibly diverse family and I've seen the world and I've seen the religious traditions. And even as a teenager, I'd come back to like the Baptist church that I was kind of engaged in and I'd realize, oh, wait a minute. These good suburban white Baptist evangelical people, they're really not doing anything that different from all Mm. these other religious traditions I've seen because it's still control rooted in fear, using God to mitigate their their anxieties. And it's and, and yet when I got my nose in the Bible as a teenager, I saw a radically different message coming from Jesus. And so when people look out at 2024 and whatever craziness happens and the way God and Jesus name are thrown around, just realize people are doing what people do. And in America, it happens to be Christianity that's manipulated this way. In other countries, it's Islam. In other countries, it's Hinduism. In other countries, it's Buddhism. We all do this all the time. And it's not an indictment of Christianity. It's an indictment of sinful, broken humanity. And I'd encourage everybody to get your nose back in the Gospels and read Jesus' words. Look at what he said and did and recognize that this is a fundamentally earth-shattering and different way of understanding God and our world. And it's life-changing. It truly is. And don't just assume because somebody has the label Christian or pastor or church that they are living in this kind of communion with Christ and are speaking his message. So good. Speaking of Jesus, I would be a really bad host if I didn't ask you to talk about the book you came out in um, this past fall of 2023. You have a whole series of what if Jesus was serious. And I've read every one you put out so far, and I look forward to reading that one. What is your newest one in the fall? The new one is um, what if Jesus was serious about heaven? And it, yeah, this is another one of those things. It's a little bit like with in that, um, you know, a lot of Christians think they they understand heaven. And, and the book is really designed to show most of what we believe about heaven is completely bogus. It's not what's in scripture. It's not what Jesus said. And it's a recalibration. And but similar to what I said earlier about the life 
um, from God. A lot of us have this idea that we use Jesus to get what we really want. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us have a view of the gospel that, well, Jesus is how I get to heaven. And the goal of the gospel, the goal of the Christian life is heaven. And this book is designed to actually debunk that. And the goal of the Christian life is not heaven. The, and Jesus is not just how we get to heaven. The goal of the Christian life is Jesus himself. And once you understand that, that he's the center, not heaven, it puts everything in its proper place. So the book is really designed, to, similar to With, to recalibrate the message of Jesus that we think we know and, and get it right. It's basically detangling everything we learned in the 90s, you know, of at uh, our <laughs> yeah. youth camps and stuff. Okay, real quick before you go, you have What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven, but what are the other ones? Because I want everyone to to check these out as yeah, well. Yeah, the, the first one was just What If Jesus Was Serious, which was kind of a walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Then I did What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer, mm -hmm. which is also a great companion to With, because With All Ends and Well, What Does the Life with God Look right. Like in Prayer mm -hmm. and all prayer. that? So that's what that book's all about. What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? which is learning to see the church not as an institution or an event, but as a family once again. And then what if Jesus was serious about heaven? And hopefully next year we will have what if Jesus was serious about justice. Ooh, I like that. Okay, Sky, yeah. I am so grateful for you. Before we close, I do want to know, what are you reading these days? Oh, gosh. Uh, right here is N.T. Wright's new book. Into the Heart of Romans, which is all mm -hmm. about Romans chapter eight. I'm often reading stuff that I have to interview people about. So yes. that interview is, is coming up. Uh, I'm reading Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's new book, uh, Pivot, which is a follow-up to Tove, all about how the church needs to change. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had my nose in a bunch of biographies about Abraham Lincoln lately. Oh, you've been talking about that on the show. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And I've, I'm, my current devotional series in With God Daily is all, I'm calling it Lessons from Lincoln. Lessons from Lincoln. I mm -hmm. like that. Well, Sky Jatani, thanks for coming back on the happy hour to talk about what I, full disclosure, we're doing this interview way before J January of 2024. And I'm already calling that this book will make my top, one of my top 10 books of 2023. So thank you for writing it in 2011. And um, thanks for coming on the happy hour. Thanks, Jamie. I'm happy to be here anytime. The Happy Hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivey, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell, and the show is edited by Jason Talley. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 